people traveling throughout the United States or around the world can often lead us into strange and all by even uncomfortable places, encountering different languages, cultures, and people can give you, give one, a sense of insecurity or even uncertainty. But however odd or strange a place might be to us, however new it might be to our senses, when in those travels we come across a fellow Christian, we often feel an immediate kinship, a relationship, a bond. Striking up a conversation with a fellow Christian can often create a sense of unity, a shared life together. Even though they are a stranger to us, they feel like a close friend. While everyone else around us may seem strange, though language and culture may separate you, the very fact that they are a brother or sister in Christ has this immediate effect upon us. There's a shared alliance because they truly are a brother or sister. My friends, this is how the Apostle Paul felt when he first heard of the Colossian Christians. When he first heard about this church that had been started in Colossae, though he had never met them before, there was an immediate connection with them. There was an immediate connection because of their shared faith in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they served the same Lord and were adopted into the same family, the Apostle Paul felt an immediate kinship. An immediate relationship was forged. Thus... He incorporated into his regular prayer life thanksgiving for this particular congregation. Now last week we began, to, began our study through Paul's letter to the Colossians. We discovered that this letter was not merely a historical record of Paul's writings to this church, but rather it is God's infallible inspired word to us. Therefore, it comes to us as the authoritative word of God. We ought to read this as if Jesus of Nazareth is speaking these languages. And so this week, we'll find that Paul is moving from introduction into the main body of the letter. There's a reason why Paul picked up the pen to write. You see, in the church, there had begun to creep in a a kind of mystical false teaching, a mysticism, an early kind of Gnosticism had crept into the life of God's people, whereby they began to practice things like the worship of angels, or aesthetic practices like not eating certain types of food, abstaining from certain types of drink, thereby thinking themselves to be more spiritual because of these ascetic practices. And so Paul picks up to write to them, but as he does, he's immediately drawn into thanksgiving. He's immediately drawn into reflecting on the character of this church. And so Paul begins with thanksgiving, and then next week we'll see that he concludes with prayer. Throughout the letter, Paul is going to emphasize one particular theological idea above the rest. And that is the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who reigns supreme over all. And therefore, we don't need to worship angels because Jesus is over angels. We don't need to uh, fear angels. 
lesser authorities in this life because Jesus reigns supreme over all. And as we think about this particular point over today and the the subsequent weeks, we will see that as Christians live under the supremacy of Christ, they do so by living according to the will of God. In other words, to to use some old school language, uh, you can't have Jesus as a Savior and not have Jesus as your Lord. You have to have both. Jesus can't just be your Savior, he has to be your Lord. In fact, Jesus isn't your Savior if you've not surrendered your life to him. To say it this way, if you're still living life your way, then you're not living God's way. You see, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ calls us to stop living our way and start living God's new way. And what we're going to see this morning is that when we live God's way, certain characteristics begin to show up in our lives. There's evidence that we're Christians. Now, you might be accustomed to just running around town calling yourself a Christian. But you see, it's only, as we'll see this morning, when we evidence faith, hope, and love, do we evidence that we're truly born again. With these in mind, I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. It's found on page 983, most likely, in the Pew Bibles in front of you. If you're not accustomed to looking at God's Word, let me just encourage you in a couple ways. Number one, you want to find the big number one, and you want to make your down to that itty-bitty, teeny-tiny number three. We're going to be in verses 3 through 8 this morning. Paul writes that we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. What the Apostle Paul does here in those verses, in in the original language, is just one sentence. Uh, Paul is just a master of the run-on sentence. And uh, it's just one sentence there, beginning in verse 3 and ending in verse 8, where the main idea is to give thanks. Paul, in in those verses, is giving thanks to God for these Christians. And so for us this morning, the real main idea that we want to take away from this text is that Christians ought to give thanks to God for the evidence of gospel growth in our lives and in the lives of others. In other words, Paul models for us some basic Christian behavior that we ought to be thankful That as Christians, we ought to be the most thankful in all the world. We ought the ones to be grateful because we understand that God's grace is unmerited. It is undeserved. None of us in this room deserve to be saved. And so this morning we want to think about, to spur us on to thanksgiving by looking at the evidence of God's grace in our lives And, as the Apostle Paul does, in the lives of others. 
in our passage this morning, we see really two aspects of thanksgiving. First, we see the object of thanksgiving. That is, to whom do we give thanks? Do we give thanks to those around us? Or do we give thanks to God? Secondly, the reason for our thanksgiving. Paul outlines a number of reasons why you ought to be thankful. Why I ought to be thankful this morning. And so we see who ought to be giving thanks and why we should be giving thanks. So let's look here at verse verse 3 first. The object of our thanksgiving is God. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, Paul makes very clear here in the very beginning of this book that thanksgiving is a regular part of prayer. This is why in our order of service we had a prayer of thanks. Not because Pastor Chris thought it was a good idea, but because Jesus commands us to give thanks. You see, what we do in this place is propelled by commands given by King Jesus. And he says we always thank God. In other words, Paul had a habit of perpetual thanksgiving. It wasn't that he was constantly running in his mouth and saying, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you. But rather, it was a posture of his life. You see, when you realize that you ought to be a dead duck, and you're actually alive, you ought to be thankful. When you understand that you deserve the eternal wrath of God, but by grace through Jesus Christ you've been saved, well, you ought to be thankful. When when you were waging war against Jesus' bride, the church, as Paul did, as he was murdering Christians, as he often did, and as he was seeking to lock up as many Christians, and God comes into your life, well, you'll be grateful. And so Paul was perpetually thanking God for these Christians whom he never met before. Whom he had no temporal relationship with. Didn't even know their names. But he knew their life. Notice what he says here, we give thanks to God. Notice how he describes God here. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul here in this particular passage is emphasizing Not only the Father, but also the Son. In other words, he's emphasizing the Lordship of Christ is not at the detriment of God the Father. That there are two distinct persons that he's referring to. In fact, one could argue that this is one of the most Trinitarian passages in your Bible. He begins with God the Father, moves into the Lord Jesus Christ. Then notice how he ends in verse 8, the Spirit. In other words, Father, Son, and Spirit, and this is why we read the Apostles' Creed today, is it's a reminder that we serve, we worship, we give thanks to a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Each distinct persons of the Trinity, yet eternally God, one God, one Lord. Secondly, we see here also as we give thanks to God, we recognize that God, by giving thanks to him, that he is the source of all good things in our life. That God the Father is ultimately the source of every blessing in your life and in my life. This is what James reminds us. 
that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, from whom there is no shadow due to change. In other words, it is God's character to bestow on his children good things, blessings. And so God here, by the Apostle Paul, is being attributed as the source of everything that comes in our life. Therefore, he and he alone is worthy of our thanksgiving. Friend, I wonder, when's the last time outside of Thanksgiving holiday have you expressed thanksgiving to God? When have you uttered and took time just to reflect on the, on the ways God has been at work in your life just this week? And to give thanks to him for all that he's done. But notice here in verse 3, he also says, We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. For your advantage, Paul says. In other words, Paul is doing this for the advantage of the Colossian church, for these Christians. And what he does through instruction and through example here is gets our gaze and focus off ourself and onto others around us. You see, we're so accustomed to judging others rather than giving thanks to others for others. This is what the Apostle Paul, he is so overwhelmed by the evidence of God's grace in the life of these Christians, he can't but help pray for them. For now, I wonder what is your posture toward other Christians? Do you slow down enough to notice the evidence of God's grace in the lives of those around you? Do you see the change in one's manner of thinking and what what, what they love? Do you you notice how God is at work or are you just solely focused on yourself? You see, the Apostle Paul helpfully here shows us to kind of lift our eyes, if it were, off of ourselves and put the gaze upon those around us you see friends you were adopted into a family you're not an only child you're surrounded by brothers and sisters who God is at work in just as he's at work in you so he is also at work in them So as Christians, we recognize then that God is the source and object of our thanksgiving. That he alone is worthy of our praise. But why should we give him praise? What is the occasion by which we should give him thanks? Well, thankfully, the Apostle Paul outlines really several reasons why you and I ought to be thankful. And it's not because we have a lot of money in our wallet or because we have a nice home or we, because we have some sort of temporary thing here on earth, but rather because of eternal fruit which will bear out for trillions of years the evidence of his grace in our lives. So notice here the evidence of the gospel. Now Paul really has outlines here in verses 4 through 8 two main reasons to be thankful. First, he was thankful to God Because of the evidence of the gospel reported to him by their pastor. Now, Epaphras, their pastor, when he got into Rome, he met Paul and began to tell him about his church. He didn't go on about all the problems. He went on about all the evidence of God's grace. 
He couldn't wait to tell Paul about what God had been doing in the life of his congregation. And so he reported all these things. And then secondly, Paul then is responding with thanksgiving because of the growth of the gospel. You remember the apostle Paul is locked in prison. He's chained. He can't go evangelize. He can't go preach sermons. He's locked away. But the gospel wasn't locked away. The gospel was continuing to go, and it was continuing to grow throughout the world. Well, first here, look at, look, notice here, a number of evidences of the gospel in the life of the Colossians in verses 4 through 5. Paul goes on, he says, Since we heard from Epaphras of your faith in, the Lord Jesus, or in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. This is Paul's three triad, his very favorite, faith, hope, and love. Does it in a little different order here in order to emphasize hope. But notice here, number one is faith. One of the evidences of God's grace was faith. Now Romans 10 tells us that faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. In other words, faith is not inherent in us. We're not born with faith. We're not, we don't, we don't, when we come to know Jesus, that faith is given to us by the Spirit at the preaching of the gospel. That's what Romans 10 says, at least. That faith comes by hearing. And here, faith is not merely faith in Jesus, but faithfulness to Jesus. In other words, Paul pictures that these early saints were under the realm of Jesus' supremacy, his lordship, and it was evidenced by their faith in him. We know that someone's been saved when they trust in Jesus, right? That's, That's what the word faith means. It means to trust, to depend upon, to rely on. No longer do we rely on ourselves, but we rely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Faith is not merely intellectual assent. It doesn't mean believing some facts about God. And friends, maybe that's how you understand Christianity. That all you need to do is read a Bible, understand some facts about God, be able to maybe regurgitate that through a creed or through some written prayer. And if you just pray that prayer, then you're a Christian. Friend, that is not how the Bible paints a picture of a Christian. That's how man paints a picture of a Christian. That's how men have done it. But God paints a picture of a Christian as one who's come under the realm and influence of a king, and his name is Jesus. And it's evidenced by your dependency on Jesus for all things in life and death. They had faith. They had a dependence, a trusting in the gospel that they knew that they could not save themselves. But notice secondly here, they had love for all the saints. Not only was their faith an evidence of God's grace in their life, look what he says there in verse 4. And of the love that you have for all the saints. One of the chief virtues of a Christian is love. We know that. Jesus commands it. We ought to love one another. How did Jesus tell his disciples that the world would know who was his? Well, it was by their love for one another. 
And nothing tells the community more about who we love than when they find a church not loving one another. You find an unloving church and you find a church that does not serve King Jesus. You find an unloving church, you find a church that does not know the love of God in Christ. You see, love for others, love for the saints, is an overflow of an understanding of God's love for you. Loving someone else is is vulnerable. It puts you in a very vulnerable place. And oftentimes our love can be reserved because we, well, after all, we don't want to get hurt. You see, the tendency in, in, in kind of the flesh is to love the lovable, right? Love those who will love you in return. But biblical love is sacrificial love. Jesus didn't love us. He didn't go to the cross out of love because we loved him. The Apostle Paul makes so clear in Romans chapter 5 that, that despite our rebelliousness, despite the fact that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Jesus Christ died for our sins. Biblical love is sacrificial love, love without distinction or without merit. In other words, look what he says, love that you have for all the saints. Now friends, I'll help you a little bit here. That Greek word there for all means all. I know, right? I'm glad I went to seminary so I could do that this morning. It means all, friend. It means everyone. It means without distinction, without favor. It means everyone. All the saints. Now here, the Apostle Paul has the gaze on the Christian. Yes, we ought to love those in the world, but here he's focused particularly on their virtue of love for one another. When Epaphras rolled into Rome, he said, Paul, i got to tell you about this church that I pastor. And i got to tell you about something about them. They love each other. Have you ever heard of that? You see, we've grown so accustomed as Christians to backbite at one another, gossip about one another, hurt one another, rather than love one another. And the reason is, as the Apostle Paul says in, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, he says in verse 14, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. Not two bodies, not three bodies. One body. See, as we come to know and experience the love of God for us in Christ, then we grow to love others. So Christians are known for their faith, they're known for their love, and notice here, verse 5, because of their hope. What was it that caused this church to be known for their faith and love? Well, Paul says right here, the reason why, number verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, hope is not this sort of you know, wishful expect, it's just it's kind of wishful thinking. Man, I, you know, I hope to, you know, do this this week, or I hope to do that this week. That's how we often use the word. But, but in a biblical sense, hope is an expectation of something that is yet to be received. 
It's a confident expectation that that is going to happen. There's no doubt in our mind. And you see, because they had such confidence in heaven, in other words, where their heart was, was in heaven. And because of that, they were able to be vulnerable with one another. See, they weren't tied to this world. They were tied to another world. They saw themselves as citizens of another kingdom. They, they saw themselves as one, as Paul will say next week, as we, who, who's, who's been transferred into a new kingdom. And they got a new king. And because their heart was there, they could love one another and they could demonstrate faith. Because they knew everything that was theirs in eternity, they could forsake everything here. It truly is, where your heart is, there your treasure will be. Well, Jesus taught us. And as Christians, if we are to grow in these ways, then we must grow to forsake this world and have our heart in another world. Well, Paul goes on, not only to give thanks for these characteristics that were evident in their life. Notice here also in verses 5 through 8 that it was the growth of the gospel that was propelling him and spurring him on to thanksgiving. He saw here really two things going on. First, the word was heard and understood. Notice what he says. Verse 5, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So here Paul describes the gospel as the word of truth that had been heard and understood. In other words... It was not a mere emotional appeal and they responding to it, but that the word Paul used here is the word often associated with discipleship. When they heard, verse 5, of this you've heard before, which indeed has come to you. In other words, following Jesus is about discipleship. It's about calling others to follow Jesus. You see, often we think it's just making an appeal. It's just say, hey, come follow Jesus, and that's it. Not at all. That is not how your Bible even presents the idea of following Jesus. What did Jesus say? Let's go back to Jesus here for a moment. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross, take it up, and follow me. Follow my example. I'm going to the cross. If you want to follow me, how did the Apostle Paul do it? He said this, follow me in so much as I follow Christ. He said, follow my example as I follow the example of my king. Thus, we must grow in a deeper understanding of God by knowing him better in his word and following the example of those around us. Discipling, helping someone follow Jesus, ought to be a regular practice in the life of God's people. It is not merely reserved for the professionals, the preacher, or the deacons, but is to be a regular activity of a follower of Jesus. Helping others follow him as we ourselves follow others. More than that, we understand that the word is heard and understood. That is, there must be a basic understanding of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ if we are to have saving faith in him. It's not merely an emotional appeal. 
I feel really bad because of my sin, and so I'm asking for forgiveness. But it's an understanding that Jesus Christ has come into the world to die the death that I deserve, and that he was raised from the dead to live the life I should. More than that, we understand that we study the scripture not merely to know facts for some Bible trivia, but to know and experience the one true and living God. Your study of the Bible isn't merely just so you can impress others. If if that's your goal, then you're just wasting your time. But rather, to know God better. You see, your knowledge of God should increase regularly through your study of Him. As you study the Word, you will grow to know Him better. This is what the Apostle Paul would exhort young Timothy who's co-writing this letter with him, he will say this to him, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now in the context of that, of course, he's writing to a preacher. He says, hey preacher, you better know your Bible if you're going to stand up and preach. But I think this is also true and applicable to Christians. If we're going to follow Christ, we need to know him in his word. And this is what was propelling Paul to give thanks. He was thanking God because their knowledge of him was growing. They were knowing him more and more. But also here, verse 6, it was because the gospel was bearing fruit in the life of the saints. Notice here what he says. Which has come to you, as indeed the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. When the gospel enters the soul of a sinner, it takes root and begins to sprout and begins to grow and begins to bear fruit. And the Apostle Paul was seeing the power of God unto salvation by the spread of the gospel around the world. Now, he uses this phrase, the whole world. It isn't that the whole world was evangelized, but it was this idea that the known Roman world, the gospel was showing up in places where Paul himself had not been, as was evident in this church in Colossae. In other words, he understood that he wasn't the linchpin that that held the whole thing together, but that it was evidence of the supremacy of Christ reigning and ruling over the cosmos. And so it is today, friends. As the gospel goes out into areas and parts of this world where evil reigns, and the gospel comes into that area, and people come to know Jesus, it's evidence to us that Jesus is truly king, not some terrorist organization or some communist party. Not even the president of the United States can stop the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It goes. And we ought to give thanks. Jesus made clear how this world would know. And Jesus made clear that we ought to be fruitful. Now Paul here, look at the language he uses, bear fruit and increasing. Well, if you know your Bible a little bit, it might sound familiar to be fruitful and multiply. The Apostle Paul here is drawing on the, the really the story of Scripture the meta-narrative of Scripture, that God created this world perfect, without blemish, without error, without any sin, but man, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. 
where they were commissioned by God to go, be fruitful, and multiply, to subdue the earth. They, they didn't. The earth subdued them, and they became a part of the earth through death. And death reigned over man until God sent his son to, to demolish death. And so what we see here under the new Adam is that a a remaking, if you will, of God's new creation. And that we bear fruit and multiply through the Spirit for the glory of God. Where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus Christ fulfilled God's purposes so that the new Adam bears fruit in the life of God's people through the Spirit's work. Here's the point. As Christians, we ought to bear fruit. Jesus said it so clear that only good trees bear good fruit. And friend, if you don't have fruit in your life, it's because maybe you're dead. You're a dead tree, and you need to be brought to life. Well, as Paul concludes this Thanksgiving, he can't help to be thankful for one particular person. He can't help but reflect on the thanksgiving of God made evidence in their pastor. Epaphras was a model, an example of what this church was to be. It's no wonder these Christians were known for their love and their faith and their hope. After all, look at Epaphras. Look how he describes him. Verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow slave or servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Epaphras was an example of exactly what that church was. And friend, it just just confirms the point that I was trying to make, is a church is as godly as their pastor. A church will rise and fall on the godliness of, of the elders of their church. This is why we, want, why we want to pray regularly that God would raise up godly pastors from among us. Because so much as we are able to follow Christ as an example to the congregation, so the congregation will learn to love and have faith and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was an example of what they were to be. And I wonder this morning, are you thankful for the evidence of God's grace in your life? Have you seen some evidence of God's grace in your life? Is there any? Have you grown in your knowledge of him to understand him better? Are you growing in your love for God and love for others? Friend, do you regularly give thanks to God for the grace of God in the lives of others? Let me just commend this exercise for you today. This afternoon, just think for a moment, maybe in your spouse's life if they're a believer, or in your children's life if they're following Christ, or in those sitting in the pew around you. Spend a few moments just giving thanks for the evidence of God's grace in your life. Have your eyes up a bit. Get your head out of the sand, if it will. And look at the lives of those around you and see that God is at work among us. Friend, I wonder, are you known for your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you known for your love and your hope of eternity? 
Do you lack these in your life or do you see them growing day by day? As Christians, we demonstrate that we are marked off, set apart by God by evidencing this gospel growth in our lives. This is how we show off, not in a, in a prideful sense, but display that God, yes, he can save a wretch like me. Because I once hated, but now I love. I once was ridden with anxiety and fear, but now I have this confident hope in eternal life through Jesus Christ. Friend, let me commend the regular activity of giving thanks to God through prayer by evidencing these virtues in our life for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for the work that you're doing in our life. Holy Spirit, we know that it is your work from beginning to end, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. King Jesus, we give you the glory and the praise and the thanksgiving for all this good work that you're doing in our life. Continue to work among us, I pray. Thanks be to God, through through our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, friends, as we conclude our time this morning and uh, just reflecting on what God has done for us, we're going to sing together, Just As I Am. So I invite you to stand and sing with us, Just As I Am.